0: Are solely the opinions of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of Revolution Radio and FreedomSlips.com, its staff or affiliates. You're listening to Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com, 100% listener supported radio, and now we return you to your host.
1: as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all around great gal. Ms. Barbara Delong
2: just voice and uh, something that that um, <clears throat> his voice is something that I have cherished for a very long time. It's he seems to have a resonance to it that takes you into another place in time. So welcome to Nightlight, everybody. i'm I'm delighted to be here tonight, though we are having storms all over the place, right, left, up, and down. I have two wonderful guests here tonight, and I'm really excited about them. We ha- I have authors, uh, Ben and Paul Eno, and um, they are best known as uh, the father-son co-hosts of the CBS Radio and W-O-O-N 1240 Boston Worcester Providence drive-time show, Beyond the Paranormal with an estimated 3 million listeners. But with nearly 60 years of combined experience as paranormal adventures, they are far more than just talk show hosts. Paul is one of the first paranormal investigators of the early 1970s, beginning while he was studying for the priesthood. He graduated from two seminaries, but was then expelled from a third because of his paranormal work, which is kind of cool, with less than two years to go before ordination. He ended up as as an award-winning New England newspaper and magazine journalist, and he's written or co-authored 10 books on the paranormal and two books on history. He's appeared on the History, Discovery, and Travel Channels. Ben... Joined his dad's adventures in 2005 at the age of 13 and at 16 became the youngest syndicated broadcaster in America. He is a sound expert and a 2014 graduate of Emerson College in Boston, and he and his dad have co-authored two recent books, and it's the two recent books that I really want to talk about tonight. I have to tell you, I am so excited. I've had the, the pleasure of reading both of the books, and... I, I think that, that they are almost must-reads for anybody who is on um, a pathway of, of expanding consciousness and understanding different paradigms and different ways of looking at things. Um, the first book is Beyond the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, which is a charmingly wonderful book. Um, it, it does chronicle a lot of their experiences, but on top of and beyond that, um their their philosophy of of a multiverse is woven in and among everything and explains things from a different point of view than a lot of people um presently are are looking at things it's it's a new paradigm that that is amazing and it it does kind of expand and blow away a lot of a lot of our um past philosophies which you know, can't hurt anybody. And the second book, um, which, which I had the pleasure of reading, um, is Beyond the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of. It again, uh, stretches you and expands your understanding and awareness of things that actually are out there and gives you different philosophies as to what it is we're actually looking at. So, um, Paul and Ben, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having us. Thank you, Barbara. Uh,
2: Can I make one correction?
3: Uh, It's behind the paranormal, not beyond. It's very common mistake.
2: Okay, for both of them.
3: Yes, it's they're part of a series we're hoping to continue with.
2: I got you, but the book your publisher sent me says behind.
3: (laughs) Oh no, no, it it is behind. Oh, okay.
2: Playing tricks on us. All righty. So, um, oh, I said beyond. I'm sorry. Yeah, they they both books um, I found fascinating, and uh, one of the the main features of the first book, especially, you go into your your theory of theory of philosophy of um, the multiverse, and a lot of my listeners probably don't understand what the multiverse is. So, if you could maybe give uh an explanation to help them understand what we're going to be talking about here
4: okay um well i mean in a very very simplistic sense i guess um i I like to use use an allegory of you know bubbles in a sink so you you wash your hands and there's some bubbles left over in the sink hopefully if you use soap so there are those soap bubbles there are some that are that expand there's some that pop some that get absorbed into other soap bubbles some that pass through other soap bubbles, and that's essentially what we're dealing with—all these different, separate world bubbles constantly interacting with each other, whether through the um, the mechanism of uh, you know quantum physics or how we understand it at least. How we've seen it work is essentially, you know, we we sort of had to make up our own vocabularies to explain this stuff, which we like to use the word "overwash." You know, keeping that oh. idea of of a, of a flowing sort of creation that we exist in.
3: Yeah, the uh, this is actually rather good physics. Uh, and none none of the physicists really um, like this, but it seems to be what the math says and, and what the experiments say and this sort of thing. And if you look back to 1952 and Albert Einstein's book Relativity, he essentially proves that time as we understand, it really does not exist. It's, there is no past, there is no future, it's all simultaneous. And our sense of past to future is really a result of our consciousness, maybe our, our maybe our mass consciousness. And then in 1958, a uh, graduate student named Elliot came up with the idea of the multiple worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Now quantum physics is something that Einstein didn't like, it was too weird for him, too weird for Einstein. However, he couldn't deny it. So after the multiple worlds interpretation was uh, promulgated in the late 1950s by this Elliot, later became Dr. Elliot, people began to look at it and began to kind of take it seriously. And there are many interpretations of it. But the one we see, and and my degree is in philosophy, and I have a theological education, and Ben's degree is in uh, audio engineering, uh, sound design, audio post-production, so neither of us are or I guess he's more of a physicist than I am. But this is what we see in the paranormal trenches for a combined 59 years between the two of us uh, researching the paranormal, or, or we like to call ourselves paranormal adventurers. Uh, I, I began to look at early cases uh, in the 1970, 1971, and people would see we heard a lot of physical things. Now, these, these were supposed to be spirits. Now, I was a seminary student. I was very easily very easy to believe in spirits. In my first case, we ran into invisible ox carts, uh, farm implements banging together, cows, dogs, none of which we could see, people talking, children laughing, as if people were going about a normal day or days in somewhere or some when else. And I began to wonder, why do we see, at times, ghosts wearing clothes? Why are they sometimes seen driving cars? I mean, it it was just too physical. The old ideas about spirits just weren't good enough. And the old ideas about two worlds, you know, a material world and a spiritual world really weren't good enough either. But with our limited paradigm, what else could they be? But if you bring in quantum mechanics and the idea of the multiverse, you have, you know, everything changes. And having applied this to paranormal research in, uh, over a number of decades now, you, you get entirely different results and you see a much deeper picture of who we are, what we are, where we are, what happens to us, what is happening to us, how we should have relations with ourselves and other people, and, and everything, everything changes. So um, at least if our interpretation is correct, we're dealing with um, perhaps an infinite number of, of um, worlds that are constantly interacting, and many of which have very different laws of physics, which is why I believe um, that I stood in that kitchen in 1974 in Bridgeport, Connecticut, with three Bridgeport firefighters on one side of me and three Bridgeport police officers on the other side, and we watched the refrigerator float. That's uh, why I could be hit, hit by a flying television set that no one had moved, etc., etc., etc. So we think that this multiverse idea um, that what you see is not what you get uh, and that we, we're dealing with a, a rather elegant system of interactive parallel worlds uh, where Uncle Chuck uh, is, has never died. And yet you, you could look and sometimes he's skipping down uh, the hallway at, after his, you know two weeks after his funeral uh, because there are many worlds in which he never died. There are many versions of ourselves. And it really does kind of change everything. And it blows up the island theory that you really have to have in order to believe the old ways, the old ideas about uh, the paranormal.
2: So in these in these other worlds that are taking place at the same time, are we always the same age slash sex or no, or no. Are...
3: not at all? Okay, uh, I think that we are. We can be anything. There is a certain unity. Uh, the Africans call it Ubuntu, the African system of justice. Everything you do affects me. Everything I do affects you. Everything you do affects yourself, because we really are. Uh, I think you really have to, you know, with all due respect to the founders of our country, and I'm a, I'm a very proud veteran, and I respect that. <laughs> However, the notion of individualism really is, is rather wrong. Uh, we seem to have a certain unity um, among ourselves and among all life and among all things. Uh, the, the, the idea of uh, panpsychism is coming to the fore now, even in physics where even uh, you know the chairs around your table, and we're sitting in some of Ben's house now, uh, have a certain have a certain uh, if you want to call it a spirit or a certain consciousness, and any shaman from any indigenous people will tell you that our remote ancestors knew these things and they knew about the multiverse, they knew about mass consciousness, and and it's uh we're only beginning to catch up with our own ancestors at this point. So uh, no, but to answer your question, no, I think there there are versions of ourselves. Here's one way maybe to understand it understand, Barbara, there is a certain uh, trend of thought when in theoretical physics, and we tend to agree with it because we think we see it, that all uh, versions of our, that, that all things that could possibly happen do happen and are happening in concrete reality somewhere or somewhere in the multiverse. And again, it's all simultaneous. So uh, in, in one facet of the multiverse, probably not near the world family that we customarily move through, uh, world families is another concept, um, Ben and I both died in a UFO crash 50,000 years ago. Right? So anything that can be conceived can be conceived simply because it does exist somewhere, somewhere in the multiverse. Um, at our radio station in the Boston Province Market, we our station manager likes us to do a Halloween show every year for some strange reason. And he, uh, and what we very often will end with is the idea of the Great Pumpkin, you know, from the Charles Schultz uh, Peanuts cartoons. And poor Linus is always getting in trouble for, who's otherwise a genius, is always getting in trouble for espousing the Great Pumpkin, you know, when the Halloween rises out of the you know I'm sure everybody knows what that is. Yeah. But we often will end with the idea that uh, if that sort of creature of some equivalent to that did not exist somewhere or someone in the multiverse schultz never would have been able to conceive of it and we would not know about it so uh-huh. i mean that's a little bizarre but uh it's it does seem to be the case that uh, all sorts of versions of ourselves are out there um one of the wildest ideas that we tend to think is correct is that um, the idea of the guardian angel uh, could be another version of ourselves. We could be our own guardian angels, uh, perhaps uh, in, in worlds where the laws of physics are such that we can have awareness. And we've actually dealt with beings from these worlds. That sounds pretty strange. Where the laws of physics are such that you can talk to your neighbors and you're not considered weird for doing so. Um, so I, I mean, it's and there are many versions uh, again of ourselves uh, who may be a, you know the, physics psychics and mediums will talk about you know the uh, the higher self or the more enlightened self Well maybe maybe that more enlightened self is true and maybe it's versions of ourselves from worlds where we uh, have a higher awareness and and can uh, assist uh, even our other versions of ourselves. We think that that's an everyday occurrence. So the
2: element of as as you know, people commonly talk about ghosts, are really mainly an overlap of, of parallel universes?
3: Well, for better or for worse, yes, and Ben can tell you some stories too, but uh, it's not all, uh, you know, uh, roses and, and sweethearts out there. I mean, in the sense of uh, there there seem to be, um, you know, life is very tenacious. It is uh, everywhere, everywhere and uh, even in our own world, uh, microbes have been found living at the cent- at the cores of nuclear reactors. I mean, if you can think of a more hostile environment than that, and we believe that uh, every world has its 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 lives. Life is the exception in the universe, rather than the, I should say, is is the rule in the universe, rather than the exception, as the great physicist Sir Fred Hoyle believed. And I think that uh, we have. Um, certainly versions of ourselves and every every other conceivable life form we've run into some that you'd be hard hard pressed to make up but i think there are also the negative aspects uh, that our folklore calls demons things of this kind uh we refer to them as parasites because in cases where i worked in exorcisms and uh th- there's poltergeist cases and things of this kind where i was working with like with and ray Warren, for example and they said oh how this these are demons we need to do an exorcism that didn't seem to be good enough either. And in ensuing decades, uh, Ben and I run into these all the time, parasitical entities that are nothing but, li- they're not spirits, they're life forms that move between these worlds, have adapted to that in nature, because nature's a lot bigger than we think it is. And mm-hmm. we've actually seen them feeding on different events and people of uh, in different worlds at the same time. And feeding on what? Feeding on, uh, for lack of a better term, negative energy. And I think if you go back through a lot of cases, you, you can interpret it that way and get a lot deeper view. So uh, it's not all um, nice uh, crit- critters out there and angels. Everything is out there, uh, neutral, bad or good from our point of view.
2: Yeah, I, well, I, I kind of like the, the concept of the parasites. I mean, not, 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 not them in particular, but the, the, part. the philosophy of them makes greater sense to me than demons. Um, Yeah. Again,
3: we interpret things according to our narrow paradigm. We give them names we can understand. Uh, I often get frustrated with that. And some of the greatest minds, for example, in in UFO studies, we're very involved in the UFO uh, community, if you will, because uh, we seem to be welcomed there. Uh, A lot of the ghost hunter types (laughs) don't like us, I guess, because we're bad for business. I mean, we question their theories and this sort of thing, but that's all right. Maybe we're wrong, you know, Uh, but we we find that um, in the UFO community, there seems to be a lot of uh, acceptance of this idea because, you know, they see it, too. And we see uh, various um, perhaps confirmations, uh, if, you, if you can call it that, of the multiverse idea when uh, people, uh, big names in the UFO community come to us and say, well, I have somebody who believes they're being abducted by aliens uh, and people have seen a lot of lights over their houses, but all of a sudden they're having poltergeist activity in their house. And it starts turning uh, very negative of what, what would traditionally be called demonic and yet it's supposed to be aliens. You know, so it makes, it makes us wonder if the labels we put on things depend on the context in which we experience them. So well, there's a lot of crossover research going on now and uh, we since 05 have specialized in what we refer to as flap areas, areas of intense paranormal activity uh, and the paranormal activity does not necessarily seem to be related to each other, but we believe it is because it's all so involved in the multiverse.
2: Well, I've always thought that the paranormal term got a bad reputation. I mean, it just means beyond normal. And when you stop and think about what's normal these days, not much. No, so it's that,
3: true. Paranormal <laughs> is entirely normal. Well
2: yeah yeah and actually uh, in your in your first book um you you go into an explanation as to it's almost how the paranormal sort of sort of enabled religion to be formed because of the experiences.
3: Well, yeah. If you look back at the uh, the ancient world, and we have a whole our whole first chapter is the paranormal in human history. Oh. Uh, y- you have um, really uh, the question. Around, everybody thinks the paranormal. I should say that that religion and science are at odds. Uh, they've only been at odds in certain circles, really, since uh, fundamentalism came about. And, and that's a relatively new phenomenon, uh, starting with, pretty much with the Enlightenment and all this. But if you go back a ways, you find that the paranormal uh, re- re- was really the, the the mother of both religion and science. You, if there had been no explanations that needed to be given, if there were no mysteries to be solved, uh, if people didn't stand there and wonder, you know, why why was my... Uh, parent or my child or my sister uh, eaten by the saber-toothed cat you know what's going on here Uh, what, what happened to their life is there an afterlife all these things had there been no questions to be answered there would be no science and certainly certainly no religion
2: well yeah absolutely and you know when you took it all the way back to basically you know the Sumerians and and the beginning basically and it it was fascinating to me how you were able to you know kind of interweave this philosophy um into into you know the foundation of religion and religions so so it 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 made great sense to me i had to admit i was sitting there and i kept saying huh now that that is certainly a possibility here
3: (laughs) So it's a a possibility. Um, One of the things I think certainly that we point out in the first chapter there is that if you go to the British Museum in London, at least the last time I was there, you know, there's this gallery of uh, the gods, you know, and and you've got these, uh, you know, the the nice ones, you know, the later ones like Isis and Osiris and, you know, the the different ones from the Greeks and Romans and the Egyptian cultures uh, when they had been somewhat sophisticated. But then Next door to that, they used to have or, or they still have um, these these really ugly, nasty backyard deities, as we call it in the book,
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, who just there's no love there. There they, they just seems to be, uh, you know, do what we say or else. Uh, and certainly pe- these gods, you know, they, they didn't live. These people didn't live in worlds like we live in, with artificial environments and heated homes in the winter and all this they faced a lot of of, of rough times in nature, particularly in the winter in these latitudes. So naturally, they're going to have gods that reflect the the dark and the light and the night and the day and this sort of thing. I mean, that's fine. But we think that this may be an indication that there were some sort of multiversal, if you will, incursions uh, that that took place around and and involving our ancestors our remote ancestors, uh, twice at least maybe more than that. Uh, and one of the indications of this is uh, some uh, things that we point out in that first chapter about the archaeological record, which are very, very strange. Uh, we mentioned Mohenjo-daro, uh, which is a ruin of a, uh, the Indus Valley civilization. It's in today's Pakistan. And uh, the whole center, and there are several places in the world where this has occurred. There There is sand that has been heat fused into greenish glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a, a blast for lack of a better term, blast circle around the center of the city in which the buildings, which of course were made of stone, obviously melted. Now, the only other thing that would, besides a nuclear weapon that would cause such uh, such heat would be a, a comet impact. And there would be the you know, vast geological evidence of that, and there really isn't. Um, so the only other alternative would be, unless we, there's something else that we don't know about, uh, would be a nuclear explosion, and you find similar substances at at in Alamogordo, New Mexico, where the nuclear bomb tests occurred in the uh, 40s and 50s. Um, so the the wars of the gods, as it's uh, captured in folklore, um, and in uh, poems that we we mentioned, such as the Mahabharata of the uh, the um, Indians, uh, talk about these tremendous wars. And 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 Ben uh, was would always tell you about his friend who uses the same term. Vimana, uh, today. Oh yeah. So, I mean, it's it's the same.
4: You know, that I remember as a joke. Well, not a joke, but you know, as a fun fact, he was like, you know, it's kind of funny that we've had a word for plane before planes existed, and that word was vimana, which was the uh, the sort of device that the gods would ride 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 around on in the uh, Mahabharata. Uh
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the Air Force too. So if you, in the, I believe, it's the, is it Hindi or Sanskrit? Sanskrit.
4: Sanskrit. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Uh, the language is still Vimana, which is a, is an aircraft, and they're, they're, they have all sorts of artistic uh, uh, renditions of this. Uh, there are the I was in um, Australia in uh, the uh, in 1979 and uh, spent a long time speaking with a little um, fellow named uh, Mindalui, who was an uh, elder of the Aboriginal people, and uh, he you know he pointed out various art artwork uh, of uh, what det- there have to be what we would call greys and things of this kind. So there yeah. was some sort of incursion. Uh, and we, we talk about that in the chapter. Uh, we also believe the parasites might've been involved because you had Sumerian civilization. And people find that, that this very surprising, that there, there's um, overwhelming evidence that our remotest ancestors uh, from the prehistoric times and on into the, um, uh, well, the most ancient people such as the, uh, the, the Bushmen, uh, Khoisan and Khoisan Bushmen of Africa, the um, peoples of the Indian Ocean, uh, the, the Nicobar and Andaman Islanders, you know, whose cultures go back between 50 and 100,000 years, at least genetically. And mm-hmm. their traditions are just as old, which is pretty awesome. Their first deities, th- there was really a, a single God. They were, they were most, apparently people were monotheists, worshipers of one God, not many gods in the beginning, uh, or, or at least a divine family very often a, uh, a father God, a mother God, and uh, a, a child who was usually us, okay? And you even see that reflected in the Christian Trinity. So that, that seemed, but then all of a sudden, in places like Samaria and other places, all of a sudden, in a very brief period of time, that all changed. Uh, in Samaria, a civilization that arose between eight and 9,000 years ago, you had a, a fantastic development in a very short time. It's as though one month they, they were you know farmers and hunters. and the next month they were doctors, lawyers and teachers and things of this. kind. And, and cities were being built and things of this kind. But in the process they, they ended up with like 5,000 gods, demigods and demons and things of this kind, which had been unknown only a short time before. very strange. Uh, so we wonder if um, uh, the perhaps parasitical entities came in, which are hungry, hostile, know how to push buttons and, and are, are very intelligent depending on the species. So you have a possibility that these came in, uh, pretended to be gods, convinced the people that they were uh, and uh, took over. And I, I don't think that that's an exaggeration. Uh, we, we cite in the book, the case of the Bell Witch, uh, which is well known in American folklore. And I think it really happened uh, because it's between 1817 and 1821 in Robertson County, Tennessee. And I think what, uh, uh, well, I was—I uh, can't remember the year that it was made, but it was uh, at least 10, 15 years oh, ago. Oh, American Haunting, right? American Haunting, yeah. yeah. Remember
4: what year that was? Uh, it was maybe like six, seven
3: years ago. I don't know. Well, anyway, um, it was starring Sissy Spacek and uh, Donald Sutherland. And I was asked to be not a consultant, but we were going to do a separate featurette, much like Ben and I did with The Conjuring right. in 2013, a featurette that would go with the film. And, I was, and uh, Andrew Warney was going to be involved in all of So I was given access to certain documents and some of the, um, the sources uh, for uh, the book on the subject. And there was, is a lot of indication that these things might very well have done in Robertson County, Tennessee, what they did in ancient Samaria, if, if we're correct. This, uh, these entities, uh, there seem to be uh, six of them. Uh, we would call them parasites. Uh, in this home, in uh, this area, because the people were mostly farmers, uh, became uh, t- began to manifest, as they always do, as, as they did in 1817, as they did in ancient times, and as they did in Bridgeport in 1974 with the poltergeist case there that I referred to, uh, it would start very small, bit, some knockings, things of this kind. And as people got more upset, uh, annoyed, fearful, they would feed on that and get stronger. Uh, by the time the thing came to uh, its sort of full f- fruition, uh, it was um, known around the county that these things were happening. People would come to the home to hear uh, the entity sing in a beautiful voice, okay? They'd never see it, they'd just hear the, hear the voice. Sometimes it'd be different voices. They would, uh, it would tell hilarious jokes. It, w- it would repeat word for word every sermon from every church given every Sunday in Robertson County during its, during its, its period there. It became so strong from all the attention it was getting that it went out and started giving uh, agricultural advice to the local farmers. I mean, (laughs) you couldn't make this stuff up. And this is all in these documents. And I think that had these not been 19th century Protestants, this, this entity or entities may very well have taken over. And one of the more interesting parts, things that we found in researching parasites, is that the longer they spend in our world, or at least across the membrane, as a physicist might say, in our world, and feeding here, uh, the, the, the more they tend to forget their own origins. It's fascinating. They tend huh. to, uh, the, the lower species, particularly they tend tend to be afraid to separate from their host because they don't know where to go, or what they're going to eat, or what they're going to do. Uh, and the uh, people would would ask this entity in, in the, the Bell Witch case, uh, and the reason it was called Bell Witch, by the way, was because uh, the next door neighbor was uh, her name, was a, the Bell family. And the next door neighbor was was considered to be a witch because they were having an argument. Uh, but she was also a, a niece of the Bell family. Anyway, that gets into a deep well. But the entities themselves, um, people would ask, Who are you? What are you? And where did you come from? And uh, they really didn't seem like they could remember, but they said that they had Native American connections had been in the area for centuries. Now, who were the native americans in that area? Uh, there was they were the uh, the mound builders uh from about from well 600 to 1000 years before this. And not much is known about them, but they did literally build serpent the serpent mound in Ohio, different in West Virginia and different places of that kind. And they were believed to have practiced human sacrifice. Now what would attract a parasite more than that? think of the energy think of of the of the power uh, the sustenance they would gain from such a negative act. Uh, think of the power of war that they would feed upon you know and so this uh, these apparently manifested centuries later in this house in Robertson County and may very well have taken over if these people had not been uh, had other another belief system. So that's just an example of what can happen with with the the negative entities uh, operating through the the multiverse, the various uh, membranes.
2: Now, you mentioned incursion. Now, would that just have been parasites or is it possible for um, visitations? In other words, from from one life to another?
3: Well, yes, I think they happen all the time. Uh, We had, well, just before we leave the subject of the ancients, uh, an incursion—it's is our term. Uh, it's very—it it's, seems that someone with either superior technology or—I mean, if you want to be very conventional about it—I suppose you could talk about the Indo-Europeans uh, who had the, the the technology of the wheel and the chariot. But anyway, somebody descended into uh, the Middle East at, at at well, we're looking probably any time between ten and one hundred and fifty thousand years ago. Uh, because here's here's the uh, here's the thing, um, I was determined to read both the New Testament and the Old Testament in the original. So I went down to Temple Bethel in Providence, Rhode Island. Very welcoming, warm Jewish community down there, and I was able to study some Hebrew. Uh, and I wanted to just get through the Old Testament. Well, if you read the first passages of the of the of Genesis, which say, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that may be the correct translation. Uh, and of course, ancient Hebrew uh, has the, the problem of, of, of there are no vowels and there are no separations between the words. I mean, modern Hebrew has vowel marks, at least. But you could read that, th- those first, that first sentence as when it began, the shining ones stood upon the heights and looked down upon the highlands and the lowlands. Now, who were the shining ones? The most ancient term for God used in the Old Testament is Elohim. It's the weirdest word in all the Semitic languages. It's a feminine root, uh, elu, uh, with a masculine plural ending. So, and it's, and it's, again, plural, it means the shining ones literally, literally translated into English. So what the hey is this? So they t- these shining ones turn up in a number of different places, even outside the, the Hebrew uh, culture of the time, the ancient Israelite culture. So to make a long story short, it's um, we may be dealing with something, an entirely different translation of something that is very important in the ancient cultures. Now, on top of Genesis, you have several other ancient documents that are contemporary with other creation accounts. You have the Atrahasis of the Akkadian Empire, it's that most people have probably never heard of, but it was the first known empire in, in that area. Uh, and then you also have the uh, Karsag epics of the Sumerians. Now, the, there was always in all three, and a lot of people don't realize this, Yahweh, that's a later term, had a, a female counterpart known as the Shekinah. Uh-huh. Uh, there was Karsag and Ninkarsag, the mother and father goddesses of the, the Sumerians. And uh, Enlil and, and Ninlil, who were, were the... Uh, the Akkadian ones of the Babylonian culture at the other time uh, that that was written. So, I mean, you've got a similar um, narrative in all three documents and they're all more or less written around the same time. The, if you take away the poetry, the uh, religious imagery and the flowery stuff, you get the same story. At some point, someone arrived with some very strange technology, uh, in the Middle East uh, and uh, founded a what what sounds like an agricultural colony. And uh, the place is, pre- is pretty much usually rendered as Ekden or Eden, right? Uh, and and you've got uh, there is there is a town in the Kadisha Valley of of Jordan which we tend to believe or I'm, sorry, I'm, not, I'm not Jordan Lebanon, which we tend to believe may be the location of this. And there's still a town there called Ekden. Uh, It's frighteningly ancient, and it's like it's been there forever. There's evidence of of ancient agricultural and canal work that would have been beyond the capabilities of the people at that time. So everything is weird about this. The really frightening, well, I don't know if it's frightening, but really, really weird part is that in the, especially in the Karsag ethics, uh, Nin Nin Karsag takes blood and saliva. And what are they? They're DNA sources, right? Mm -hmm. And works with the native peoples, which would be our presumably our remote ancestors who were very primitive and turned them into workers because the, the, their people didn't like the whole idea of having to do this work, either they were stuck in this part of the multiverse, couldn't get out or something like that. There are a number of theories. Uh, what's interesting is that if they were not very, very similar, if not the same species as we are, They wouldn't have been able to do this DNA uh, modification unless they had stunning technology for gene splitting, which they may have. So whether these were aliens, uh, at least from the face of it, I don't think so. They might have stumbled in from a very different part of the multiverse uh, by design or by accident and uh, literally taken over. All all these things of the wars of the gods come right out of this. Uh, there are stories of uh, them found, founding the most ancient cities, uh, Ur, and cities like that in the Middle East, uh, named, of course, after the founding gods themselves. Uh, they would have wars, the gods themselves would lead. Uh, once that went during peacetime, the gods would fly in some kind of craft uh, to visit their counterpart, or hobnob with the other gods in the other city. I mean, this is right there uh, for all to see. And uh, But again, it's surrounded by all sorts of imagery. So I think. Um, we may be looking at the, 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 the most profound story in ancient uh, history or perhaps prehistory.
2: Yeah. Well, what, what has always gotten me is it's so obvious that something happened to trigger a Renaissance and, yeah. and um, it, it sounds as though well, it feels as though that, that it, it was from the not our dimension.
3: Well that's what it appears to be. Now maybe we're misinterpreting, maybe we're getting it wrong. I mean our ancestors weren't stupid.
4: No, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say that it's well obviously our ancestors aren't stupid, but you know, I I think there there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and I think that we're just barely
3: scratching the surface. Well, yeah, it's kind, the, of the, kind of the first day of school. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, look at look at our DNA. I mean, there's stuff in there that they don't know what it's for.
3: Well, that, that's the thing. And we point that out, uh, that when the, the human genome, as it's called, was mapped finally in 2004, um, they found 223 genes that shouldn't be there if uh-huh. evolution, as we understand it, is correct. Now, uh, the, of course, how do they get there? Well, biologists always, you know, in, in particularly biology and physics, scientists w- will sort of invent a theory uh, that seems most logical and hope that it will fit. And, and very often it does. I mean, it's not the wrong thing to do. I mean, you have to try and explain it to start somewhere. But these 223 genes, uh, the, the theory that they, they came up with was that there was some kind of, a, quote, horizontal transfer from bacteria, unquote. Now, I I have yet to meet a biologist to explain what that even means. So, uh, did someone put it there? I mean, I mean, we're talking about what appears to be DNA uh, genetic experimentation in in documents that are four thousand years old. So, and, and that that came down in oral traditions from way back before that. So, um, any it's your, anybody's guess.
2: Well, look at look at some of the um, skulls and and things that they have found that that go back, you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years that indicate there was brain surgery.
3: Oh, the, you know that's true. Yeah, we point that out as well. Uh, there is evidence of, I believe it's a, a sophisticated dental work, like root canal stuff, uh, and we're talking 9,000 years ago in the Middle East. Uh, what's really kind of frightening or interesting, depending on your point of view, is uh, there, there have been several... Uh, skulls of uh, aurochs. Now, Aurochs are extinct bovines that were, you know, just wild cattle that was running, were running around the plains of Central Asia uh, up to about uh, 9,000 to 6,000, 6, to 9,000 years ago, but you know, they haven't been seen since. And uh, these skulls have um, clear, uh, seem to be, they seem to have been brought down by gunfire. Uh, there are clear e- entrance and exit bullet wounds, things of this kind. Uh, there's a Neanderthal skull found um, in Africa, you know, from way back, and, and it had what appeared to be clear entrance and exit bullet wounds from a high-velocity rifle. Now they were extinct as of you know, no no more recently than 10,000 years ago. Okay. So, um, and, and as it is, I mean, a lot of people are coming around to the idea that you know, regardless of any incursion or multiverse, that we have had a cyclical. History. History is not linear. I mean, most people think we started out as, you know, running around in caves with clubs uh, and then gradually became better and more sophisticated and more advanced, quote unquote. And I believe there's
4: uh, evidence that we that there have been at least five great extinction. Yeah, points, four to five. Yeah. Four to five great yeah. extinctions that have happened.
3: And yep. a lot of the, uh, the indigenous peoples uh, believe that. And whether it was caused by wars, I mean, as in the evidence for nu- uh, nuclear explosions way back, uh, or natural disasters, or whatever the cause, uh, we seem to have gone, as it were, from stone tools to power tools uh, at least four to five times.
2: Wow. Well, I am I think what, what I was looking at is if it's possible to skip into another time zone.
3: Yeah, well, I think that um, w- we make a mistake if we think of the, um, the bubbles as Ben described and as physicists describe sometimes, uh, as those being uh, isolated, you know, like we're living in one bubble and that's, that's where we spend most of our life. Uh, I don't think that's how it works. And maybe you could leap from one to another in a time machine or something. I don't think that's how it works. Uh, what we think is that uh, we live in, uh, for lack of a better term, world families. Okay, like you get up this morning and whatever you do in the morning you, you, that you always do, you did it. And every time you make a decision or a choice, you're moving into another another world. Uh, there is a, an actual theory in quantum mechanics that um, it, and, and the, the, you, you can explain this maybe by means of the time paradox that we, that we always talk about in the science fiction films. If you go back in time and shoot your own grandfather, how could you ever be born to go back in time and shoot your own grandfather, right? Well, that doesn't seem to be how it works. If you go back in time, and first of all, you're not going back in time. Uh, Physicists who work with this will say, you don't go back and forth in time. You go sideways, of course, which is simultaneity. But if you go and shoot your own grandfather, you will simply create another uh, time stream or universe or bubble or whatever in which the grandfather is dead and in which you were not born. But will have no effect on the one in which you were born. So, the time paradox is is a bust. It just isn't, doesn't so, mean it.
2: So so trying to travel back in time to figure out what happened in any particular time frame doesn't work.
3: Well, no, because you're not going back, you're going sideways. sideways. Uh, you might you see whatever all possibilities exist. so in in uh, many, many worlds, uh, we'll say like the American Revolution never took place, okay? So you might travel to a parallel world and you'd still see the British union jack flying over the post office. Say. I mean, <laughs> these are all you know, real, real things. Um, I think that, but the, I often get that we often get the question, gee, why can't I move to a different uh, world or whatever? Well, again, you know, it's really a lot, a lot of it is what we make of it. Uh, mm-hmm. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle may be the beginning in physics where um, a a, 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 uh, Something is either a particle or a wave, depending on who's looking at it. And it seems like we have a great influence on reality, but not individually necessarily, but together as, as a biosphere. That gets into a whole other other thing. But yeah, I think we're moving from many one one world into many as many as, as, as a million or more worlds a day as we move through. Um, so
2: so each individual has their own universe of, of time. Uh, of sideways
3: realities well, I, I don't i think we need to forget the notion of the individual at least as we've under at least in terms of the island theory okay, okay. uh because it, the, the idea that, that everything we are is contained within our brains and our bodies i mean that that that's very often uh one of the stance that science will take without maybe even saying it uh, but i think that's not valid anymore
4: it's also relatively <laughs> new in human history yes it
3: is yeah, you know, the whole idea. Yeah, you know, the whole idea of okay, what happens to me when I die? You know, people just assume you're going to remain you after you die, and people want that because they don't want the, they, they don't want their precious selves to go poof. And not only <laughs> do they want that, they want to remain themselves forever. You know, which is very odd in human spirituality, the history of human spirituality. But to, to get back into into the world, uh, the shaman. We'll explain it. Uh, I, in the same year, 1979, I spent a lot of time with this shaman, uh, Minda Louie, in Australia, and also with another shaman, a Cree shaman in uh, in Canada, in Quebec. And uh, different ends of the planet, they both told me the same thing, that essentially we're right about this multiverse thing. They, they will couch it in different terms. But what they do is if somebody, uh, and for example, Minda Louie, said someone had cancer here, or in Australia, certainly. And and he said, what you do is you go into a, what amounts to a parallel world where they don't have cancer and you do what a, he didn't put it this way, but you do what, what sounded like a physicist would describe as collapsing the wave function. The two worlds become one and the person doesn't have cancer anymore. And he said, they, that's what shamans do. They move from world to world and they have a certain control. Uh, he said, it can be fraught with peril. It can, it can be very dangerous. And really, the Cree uh, shaman told me essentially the same thing. Where it got really weird and interesting was when they said uh, that they had, uh, they had never done it themselves because it's not a good idea. But when they themselves were children, there were shaman they knew, that their families knew, uh, who actually brought people back from the dead. Not resurrection, not reincarnation. They literally went into a parallel world, grabbed them by the arm, pulled them across the membrane as a physicist would say, back into the the world where they had died. Now, they knew it wasn't a good idea, but apparently they they had a period of weakness where the families uh, were devastated by the loss of their uh, relatives, and and they they paid them a lot of money and all this stuff. Uh, In Australia, it was a young boy who had died, and his family was devastated. Uh, The shaman brought him back, according to the story, and uh, the child was... uh, just very confused. He had siblings he didn't know because in the other world, he didn't have the, there had been different siblings. Uh, he knew some of his neighbors, but not others. And he ended up pretty much losing his mind. Uh, in Quebec, it was a father, an adult, a father of a young family and was devastated without him. And uh, the shaman brought him back. He was very confused. He'd walk to work every day past his own grave. Uh, he would, um, he eventually went running off. They, they never found it. We're running off. Into the we just could, we couldn't take it anymore. There are reasons for why things are as they are in the multiverse. Okay. And there, there seem to be certain boundaries past which we should not go. But can we do this in daily life? Sure. That That's what meditation is. I think very often dreams are experiences of our lives. The thing to realize, we believe, is that it's not just us here and us there. It, it's all us. It's all one big kind of super self. Uh, we are... Our whole subconscious mind may very well be made up of the lives we are living uh, already in the multiverse, in different different worlds, di- different as even as different people with different names. Uh, why is it, say, that, that uh, Mozart was able to write brilliant piano concerti beginning at the age of four? Yeah, perhaps because he was aware of and in touch with himself as a great composer in a world where he already is one. I'm not even using the past tense because there is no was, you know.
2: Okay. So, so, so what happens when um, a person transitions? They, they stop functioning in this particular plane. What happens?
3: Okay. Yeah, good question. Well, we, we use the term translate. Okay. Uh, we don't use the term die because I don't believe there is any such thing. Uh, so when someone translates, it's, it's an ancient theological term, actually. And even the pagans used it. And I think what happens is essentially maybe nothing happens. Uh, I think it's, a, as in everything in nature, it's a path, path of least resistance. Uh, if this thing about the subconscious is true, you're already living many, many parallel lives. Uh, consider it to be like a tree in the, in the autumn and a leaf, a leaf falls off, like this particular body, you know, a leaf. Um, falling off and what difference does it make to the tree you're the whole tree we're all the whole tree you know and uh it keeps growing it grows more leaves the leaves fall so what it's like losing a fleck of skin off your finger i mean so what um so perhaps so uh, if you then the path of least resistance thing if you have discovered like mother teresa or people of that caliber the secret which is it's not about me it's about us you probably uh will immediately just continue where, where you already are uh, in a, some, in a life uh, where you are um, a person who is, I want to say, enlightened, or perhaps in a world where the, you, you can help others, and all laws of physics or such, that you're, you're, you're super aware. Uh, but if you're a selfish jerk, you'll probably continue to be a selfish jerk, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> just continue in a life like that. We we, uh, we, did, we did a show, in fact, exactly, we have a chapter in, in uh, the first book on, on suicide. And the reason for that was that in 09, when we first, uh, before we started on CBS, we went, we were at that uh, we're still at, at WLON in uh, Rhode Island, and uh, one of the first shows we did was on teen suicide. It was uh, prompted by several things. Ben can tell you about his uh, uh, the friends who were discussing this. Well,
4: I mean, you know, it's high school is a weird time for pretty much any any teenager. So you know, the pressures were we're on for all of us, especially nowadays, kids are a lot more, have a lot more stress to deal with than the days of your (laughs) father. And um, I I remember remember a friend of mine was having had a really bad relationship with his dad. And he was explaining to me, like, you know, sometimes, you know, you just want to, you just want to end it. You just want to end, you know, it just seems like the only way out. And, you know, that's, I remember, I remember mentioning this to my dad, he's, you know, we should probably do a show about this and, and explain what really, really happens with it.
3: Well, there were people writing in as well, uh, young people say, you know, why can't I just end it? and you know, to pop up in a better part of the multiverse where life is better. I said, that's not how it works. And uh, it was really um, one of the most popular sh- early shows we did. And Ben uh, told it from the um, teen perspective, and I told it from the parents' perspective. And uh, that that's not really how it works. Uh, selfishness divides everything. Okay, and the the multiverse is tending toward unity. Uh, We haven't even gotten into the whole holographic theory, uh, which is we think quantum mechanics just from another point of view and the multiverse from another point of view, that all things are tending toward unity. When you bring in negativity, when you divide people or anything uh, from themselves, you are not only ringing the dinner bell for parasites, you are you are breaking the nature of the multiverse it's, it's unnatural it's not supposed to be so that when you commit suicide uh, now certainly it's, it's off it's done sometimes you know there's mental illness involved or there's some other thing or, uh that, that may have influenced it but if you do so in in uh, a pseudo rational way it's it's an act of utter selfishness now i've actually worked and this is going to sound pretty i've actually worked with people who have committed suicide from time to time uh, and they very often uh, are in worlds of utter aloneness. It's like be careful what you wish for. And again, if you're utterly alone and you, and you, you commit the, the most selfish act possible, then that the path of least resistance, nature will take you to where you really are, where you already are, in a world of utter aloneness. So that show, um, I let me like to think that it did some good. There was one mother in Rhode Island who said that she was listening to it as she drove home in her car. And her daughter was at home. Her daughter, to whom she had not spoken in three days, uh, was listening to it at home. And when the mother walked in the door, they flew into each other's arms. <laughs> Everything was fine. <laughs> so uh, th- that's the kind of thing you like to hear. So um, absolutely. You know. So, but that, that's that's the reason. Uh, you know, it just doesn't work that way. It's about unity. It's not about selfishness.
2: And then ultimately, the the philosophy is that at some point, it it will all become one.
3: Well, that's that's the thing, and if you look at it, you know, there's, there are times when a theological education helps, and there aren't a lot of people in this field who have that background, but there was a great uh, French uh, 20th oh, century philosopher. yes, Pierre de Chardin. Yes, Pierre Thierry de Chardin, uh, who was a, a French priest and philosopher, and he believed uh, in the—he, he like, he like uh, kind of kind of added a cosmic dimension that really should be there to theology— and he said that the, the, the entire uh, universe, he didn't use the term multiverse, was tending toward unity. And he called it the omega point, where everything becomes one, and, and in his terms, it was becoming one in Christ, or the cosmic Christ, as he sometimes referred. Uh, however, if you um, look at uh, the holographic theory of, of uh, that comes out of physics, you have a, a matrix matrix. That is tending toward oneness. It's the same thing, only in terms of physics instead of theology, and that uh, in the end, all everything will collapse into a, a unity point. And uh, we wonder if the explosion, what appears to be an explosion of paranormal phenomena flat areas and all this stuff, and the thinning of membranes—at least what appears to be that—is is ending up um, is because of of this this uh, beginning of a of a unification of all all things, whether it be <laughs> theological or. Physical or both, uh, or if it's just the result of a lot of information flow on the internet, we're just hearing more about things. These are all things we're wondering. You know, you never know.
2: Well, isn't that the, the the purpose to bring science and spirit together?
3: Well, they already are together. Just look at it. It's us. It's it's scientists and uh, I think theologians who sometimes drive it apart. That's we don't true. have any problems. You know, it's the the whole problem with with science. It, we need the disciplined thinking.
2: Right, Paul, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in about five minutes. The Looney, The Black Knight always comes.
0: Roundtable Live, Monday through Friday, 1 a.m. till 4 a.m. Eastern Time. Bring your mind. Bring your ideas. Bring your voice. King Arthur had nothing on us. Here at Revolution Radio, freedomslips.com.
2: nightlight and if you like what you're hearing click over to the support page and make a donation to help us keep this amazing station up and running revolution radio at FreedomSlips.com is totally listener supported from the owner to the host to the producers who we can't live without to the staff all are working here because we love the work and are dedicated to putting out quality material for all of you be it large or small Every donation is greatly appreciated and helps us all keep on supplying information and material to educate and enlighten you that isn't found anywhere else. Um, okay, so Ben, um, I'd like to aim at you a little bit here. Um, sure. I know your dad started with a traditional religious background and and came into this field questioning and stretching and, and has... Um, Years of experience in, in the paranormal and trying to make sense of it all and trying to put um, an understanding to it that takes him not only outside the box but you know destroys the box as it as it goes. Um, and I know you've been working with him since you were thirteen, and you're obviously well over thirteen right now. So there yeah, has I'm, to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there has to be a driving force or, or, or fascination of some sort that that keeps you here, that keeps you growing, that keeps you stretching yourself. So I'm, I'm kind of curious because you're going to take this beyond wherever he leaves off when he leaves off into, into a paradigm that, that you are the author of. Do you have any idea, you know, what is your aspect of fascination that drives you and keeps you going?
4: That's an interesting question. Um, I guess, you know, what, what did, uh, um, oh, crap, I can't remember her name. Uh, Judy, whoever Mary Poppins was. Um,
3: well, Ju- Julie Andrews.
4: Julie Andrews, yes. Julie Andrews once said the best place to start is at the beginning. And I guess the beginning is when I was born is essentially where my interest started because uh it's not so much as of an interest as it is a lifestyle Uh and um you know my my mother always brought me to church as a kid and um you know my my father always encouraged me to you know learn and question and stuff so i went on my own spiritual journeys and had all sorts of fun adventures with that and eventually landed myself to where i where i am today and i think it's interesting when people say usually it's like oh well I grew up in a haunted house and you know I was always (laughs) really interested in it and it's it's always the generic response and in this case I was spawned from my father and indoctrinated from day one that all right this is this is it this is how you're gonna live and you know it's not not to say that I I didn't enjoy it or that I didn't really have a choice I sort of was just like eh all right I guess I'll accept it you know because as, as a, a responsible citizen of the world, I should attempt to understand how it works, even if yeah, I'm entirely wrong. You know, mm-hmm. the, the the pursuit of living is, is, you know, an attempt to understand what we're doing. So, I mean, if I'm going to attempt to understand it, I might as well take steps to understand it. You know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah. No, it just, it seems to me that, Every generation builds upon the one before it.
4: You hear that, Dad?
2: Oh, <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, you don't have to do the groundwork. He's done it. And before him someone else did other groundwork, but but it it what my my fascination is is at this point and you know, I want to keep tabs with you because everybody grows beyond where they start. So you started, you know, in in a place that, that is, you know, very vital and growing and new and different. And your thoughts and your philosophies will expand upon it in your own way. And um, because you are another generation, and I'm you know, sorry to say I'm in your dad's generation. Um, so everything he's saying is very familiar to me. It just seems to me that that, you as you grow beyond us are going to take this theory even further so i'm wondering are are you are you going are you interested in directions that have to do with i don't know intercommunication with these other aspects of our own of our own existence or are you looking at explaining um so you know? It more deeply, some of the the paranormal experiences that that society experiences now, like the UFOs, like like ghosts and shadow people, and all of that stuff. I mean, is is your fascination with more or less explaining what's here, or is it going beyond that into what comes next?
4: Well, that's a uh, that's an interesting question. I think I think I'm going to start off by saying this. I think that the Hmm, I'm trying. I'm trying to pick it, pick it apart. Let's 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 see here. So let's talk about philosophy. How I how I, I think about things differently than my father. I think uh-huh. that my my explorations have led me in a circular fashion. So what I mean by that is uh, when I was 16 or 17, I think I might have been 17. I don't know. I was a dumb teenager. I um I I stopped going to church with my mom. So I was, because I was like, "Oh, I'm a pagan. I don't want to go. I'm not going to church anymore." It was actually more of an excuse to sleep late on Sundays. So I, uh, I, I essentially took that time to go on a little, little spiritual journey. So I, um, I took notes from from different people I met along that way. Uh, took took meditation lessons at a Zen Zen center. So I would sort of like bum free meditation sen- sessions when I could because I was a poor teenager. So I, I, I did that and I was like, eh, this is you know kind of cool, but I feel like it's missing something. So then I moved on to the next thing, and I, 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 I dabbled in, in various forms of Christianity. I, I dabbled in um, shamanism as well. And I actually took away a lot more from that because I, I was I had a full-blooded Aztec shaman as my mentor. And then we sort of fell apart uh, and fell away from each other and we moved on to different portions of our lives. I like to think that, you know, we, we learned what we need to learn from each other and then we moved on. Uh So I, I sort of came to a little bit of a standstill and um, I I ended up doing a little bit of research into, you know, where I started originally, which was, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Christian church. And I, I thought. You know, this is kind of odd, you know, it was pretty much had all these, all these ideas I'd never really thought of before because I never really delved into it. And so I, I took that and I, I realized that my background in this essentially came from when my mom used to drag me to church when I was a kid. <laughs> so I thought about it and I looked back, I did a lot of reading and research and realized that where my spirituality and philosophy was taking me was not forward, but actually backwards. And I mean that in a, um, a figurative sense, not like, oh, well, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not making any progress, I'm going backwards. More like, you know, I think that modern people are stupid. No offense to, you know, present company excluded. I think that um, pretty much all the answers we really, really needed were, you know, from our ancestors. And I think that it's kind of dumb to try and find new things when the questions that we've already asked have been answered. They may not be answered in the way that we like, but they've been answered in a way. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is phrased in different spiritual books throughout the centuries. And a lot of, a lot of the things that we believe, it just sort of is, you know, a, a different lens to look at how humans exist. And I think that it's clarifying this lens and brushing it up and viewing things from that same lens and living in that lens that makes it different. You know, my, my father, as much as I, I love him dearly, is more of an intellectual, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, and a lot of people I know are, are um, they tend to intellectualize things. And I think a majority of this is based on the experience, you know, I mean, you know, the, the rational mind is good for a lot of things, But I I think the experience is what people look past the most.
2: So how do you help humanity from this point on with what the work that you're doing? What is the purpose to it?
4: I think it's, well, let me give you an example. Um, my my wife and i went on on a on a little day trip with her friends up to up the maine yesterday and it was it was a night, nice time and we were sitting on the beach it was it was nighttime not a lot of people around and so you know they asked you know like cuz i never really talk about this stuff with friend groups or whatever you know i like to keep things you know um intellectually pg and not try to <laughs> you know, mess with people's heads. So some, someone asked like, Oh, well, you just wrote a book. That's kind of cool. What's it about? So I started explaining it. And um, then we started off with a group of eight people. We were down to three because everyone was too spooked or didn't want to hear it and walked back to their cars. So (laughs) I, I, I realized that there is a very large neglect in um having conversations now you know people don't like to have conversations so i mean the 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 question is you know how does one get a message out when people don't want to have conversations or or you know to heaven forbid think and you know i don't mean that in a sense like that's stupid or whatever you say is dumb because i could be wrong and i i like to say that first thing because it's you know i could be wrong everything i could believe could be wrong and that's why the title of our book is what it is you know Mm-hmm. We could be wrong, so well, I think, I've
2: often I've often told people that this is my philosophy today. But check in with me tomorrow; it may well change.
4: That's true, I, exactly. You know, I mean, we're all based on you know our, our entire life and everything we know is based on a collection of experiences.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So i so I mean, being able to interpret those experiences in a meaningful way, and especially in a way that can be conveyed to others is really what I've, I've attempted to do throughout the years. I mean, you know, I've, I've been, di- you know, dissuaded and had many obstacles along the way in, in my personal life and um, and, you know, everything that's been going on over the last year and a half. But, you know, the message is still the same. And I think it's trying to have people open up to these experiences. Can't force anybody, but you know, introducing a new a new way of thinking about things. You know, what the conversation ended last night with someone thinking about existence in, in a different way and thinking about quantum physics and doing research and wanting to learn more. And that's really what I want to do is is encourage people to learn more. Because yeah, I
2: yeah, my my philosophy is always if I can make people think or question and research to, you know, learn something else than that you know, I have, I have done a good job. You did mention something here though. You mentioned the two books and, um, I feel that you, you had, how do I put this? I feel you more in the second book than I do in the first book. Would that be appropriate?
4: That's probably appropriate. Yeah. I mean, you know, my writing skills are, are not as, as good as my father's. So I mean, I I felt I contributed to the first one, but I felt like I put more of my my spirit into the second one because I have I have a soft spot for cryptids, and I, <laughs> I, I hold them near and dear to my heart, especially the Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot. <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've had a, I've had a very I've had a childhood fascination with them for a very long time. Okay, so it's so just,
2: let's, let's oh, explain on. to people who don't know what a cryptic is just what a cryptic is.
4: Well, uh, cryptids, it's short for cryptozoology, and it's sort of a, a pet name, pardon the pun, for, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, crypt is, 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 you know, a creature that is, um, you know, not known by modern science. It's the study of creatures that may or may not exist. So, like Bigfoot or, um, you know, Mothman or even, you know, the Mongolian Death Worm and all sorts of other creatures like that. And there's, there's a myriad of them, and I'd like to say in our menagerie. We have a lot of cool little stories about them as well, and I think it's really interesting because it sort of demonstrates in a different way how the multiverse sort of interplays in our world
2: oh absolutely I, and I have to tell you that I truly think that ninety percent of them that you mention in your book I believe in I, I I absolutely believe they have either have existed or do exist, and of course, in the multiverse, they are existing um. I, I, I believe that that somehow um, we have chosen to not believe in them, and it's kind of like Tinkerbell. If you don't believe in them, you don't see them.
0: Yeah, that's
4: true. I always like to use the example of Beetlejuice. If, if I'm, I'm assuming, you know, people in the audience have, have seen Beetlejuice, it's classic, okay. and um, yes. it's you know when they they read the Big Book of the Dead. They're like oh well, why can't we scare the people in our house? And just like, well, you know, they don't they don't want to see you. <laughs> like, that's that's the thing. If people don't want to see them, you don't.
2: Yeah, no, I see. I'm more of a Disney-oriented person, but that's a, that's a generational thing, I'm pretty sure. So, so the second book is it goes into a lot of these Bigfoot and Mothman and 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 um, oh my goodness, mermaids and and vampires and. Um All sorts of amazing combination animals that, that that have been fables for for a long period of time and, and in many cases been used to, you know frighten children to go to bed and go to sleep. Um, but but it, it, how, how do how would you I, I don't want to explain it for you. How do you explain their existence within our reality? <laughs>
4: Well, I mean, I guess um, if uh, well, I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, let, let's let's talk let's let's talk Mothman for a second. A lot okay. of people like to like to focus in on, on one one sort of singular event, but if you if you look, a lot of other things were going on at the same time. A lot of people were seeing strange lights in the sky, UFOs, having poltergeist experiences all around Point Pleasant, uh, West Virginia. And the interesting thing about it is um, that the Mothman experience was. Not exactly bad for everyone around them. So if the ducks are all lined up, I'm uh, you can have flap areas. Whether it's you know high water tables or uh, sandy soils or all sorts of other things that sort of lead to like flap areas, areas in which you know a lot of other paranormal phenomena exist and happen. Like a uh, good example is um, the uh, Bermuda Triangle. Perfect example of it. You know a lot a lot of weird stuffs happened there. It's pretty well documented and. Uh-huh. Uh, that sort of thing was going on at Point Pleasant and a lot of other places. And so, not just Mothman, but a lot of other things were going on there too. So, it's sort of these different worlds interacting together. And one of the really interesting uh, portions of the Mothman story was one of the first real um, experiences experienced by a, a couple of teenagers. I cannot remember the name of them. The, the, the Scarberries
3: and the Millettes.
4: Yes, the Scarberries and the Millettes.
3: Lind- Linda Scarberry was the.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So essentially a couple, they, they used to hang out the old TNT plant and anyone who knows the Mothman story would know that the old TNT place was essentially, you know, like a decrepit uh, building in which munitions were made during world war II. And I guess kids used to, you know, go and dry grace up there back in the day. And so a couple of kids were up there and they were, they were driving, driving around and they, they noticed that there was like this, this creature and it was all white. If I recall and um it had big like very big wings built like you know a tall slender man but they couldn't quite recall the face because its eyes were so you know red and dazzling that they just they couldn't remember the face but its wing was caught inside of a um a uh, like like a piece of barbed wire or, or like fence or something and it was trying to pull itself free with its hands and that they recalled this, and they remember the one of the one of the passengers relayed this. Like you know, it seemed scared when it saw the headlights. So when it finally freed itself, it followed the car, and they could hear and see like the wings slapping on the side of the car as they were like driving as fast as they could away from this thing. So it's interesting because everyone usually thinks of Mothman as black, and you know, like no real head it's just like or no neck I should say with just a head that goes over it. but it's interesting that one of the one of the more you know one of the be- better sightings and experiences it was different. So why would Mothman be described differently? And there's also reports of Mothman ha- happening in different different portions of the world usually you know um, to people people think that it you know heralds a disaster and one of one of my favorites is you know it's sort of an anic- anecdote and there's no real evidence because everyone's pretty much dead now which was uh, the chernobyl disaster and um, when the chernobyl plant you know had the meltdown and then like nuclear fires going on all over the place the uh, first responders noticed that there was like this big like black they referred to it as the black bird of chernobyl flying through the the smoke and mm-hmm. essentially you know it's it's written down it's an oral history but all the witnesses who would have seen it are dead now because of all the radiation poisoning, so they all got cancer and, and stuff. So there's really no no um, evidence of it. But I like to, I like to think that that's kind of a cool little anecdote. But you know, it's it's very it's interesting because it not only describes just Mothman, but it describes so many other you know instances in which we see cryptids. Like okay. you know, why does whenever Bigfoot appears, there's always some other you know paranormal phenomenon going on at the same time. Like uh, my father's experience with with Bigfoot, if you if you want to talk about that, but it happened in in a in a flap area in which the people were seeing lights in the sky, black helicopters, all sorts of stuff. Or at least that
2: now a flap area is where two time two 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 different um, realities are overlapping.
4: I would say multiple realities are overlapping. Okay. So it's not just one. It would be you know in uh at least five six infinite amounts who knows we don't know it's just you know the best way to describe it because it's just you know there's just so much going on that it's it's easy to just you know lose track of everything else and just focus on ah it's ufos ah it's bigfoot but it's all happening at the same time which is what makes it more interesting so i so very very long answer to your short question that essentially, these the the mechanism by which these you know sort of appear in in the reality in which we live, um, deals more with quantum physics than with you know Bigfoot being really good at hide and seek.
2: I've always said I felt him interdimensional, um, which would which would go with this theory of different you know different lives, different time frames, uh, not time frames but different. Dimensions. I'm going to call them dimensions because that's what I'm more comfortable with. I, I, it, it does feel as though I find Bigfoot intelligent and gentle, and um, anything that I've any reports I've ever heard, it terrifies me that people are out trying to hunt it and kill it, which doesn't seem appropriate to me.
3: Yeah, we actually did a show with uh, Jim uh, Langs, Langsdale or Lang, whatever from uh, Killing Bigfoot. Yeah. And we got a lot of grief from a lot of listeners about having him on. it's, why hear what the man has to say? And, of course, we, uh, you know, we respected his opinion. We disagreed with it. But, um, I, I mean, th- this the whole experience that I had, very unexpectedly, is um, one of, uh, I felt very peaceful and I felt privileged. And yeah. As I was watching it, you know, and uh, I think it's it's what you bring to the experience. yeah,
2: yeah. I, I would agree with you. i I saw a UFO. It landed on my campus when I was in college. Hmm. And um, I found it fascinating that we it was after the dorm was locked because the dorm was locked at eleven o'clock every night. And um, there were there were hundreds of us that saw the exact same thing. Some of, some of them, some of the girls, you know, just they, they had breakdowns. They were so frightened and nervous and mm. others, others um, saw nothing. And when I saw it, it was, it was so peaceful. It was so, it, it was almost like it was welcoming. It was almost like it was home. Um, the, the, when, it, when it took off, it, it swooped over my dorm and it blanked out the sky it was that close and all i felt was wow there's something else out there and it feels familiar and i can't explain why but it didn't frighten me at all and oh, yeah, and think yet it's familiar yeah and 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 yet the girl standing next to me didn't see it so yeah so, there you go
3: that's what so really you know it's, it's see we think that during paranormal experiences as, as we've suggested the, whatever's happening is is sort of like maybe half in our world, and, and you're partially in its world.
2: Uh-huh. Maybe
3: the people who didn't see it weren't partially were aware enough to be hard to be across the membrane, enough I, to see it it.
2: it. it it you know that would sort of explain too why some people um experience. Um, the the paranormal experiences like like hearing like like you did when you were at the lost village that you you heard children and you heard the wagon and you heard all sorts of things and what I was fascinated with was that that when you went back into the um, I, I'm jumping into a story and I should you should probably preface it I guess I was going to where you couldn't find the cemetery
3: Oh, yeah, that, that was really, uh, really strange. We, um, <clears throat> this is in the, the first book, Behind uh, yeah, the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong. And we, uh, this is really my first, first case. Now, as a seminary student, I really wasn't supposed to be doing this, but I had a theory that maybe the ghost thing was uh, souls in purgatory, good old Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, uh which is essentially if you're, it's like a halfway point between here and heaven and okay. if you're not bad enough to go to hell and you have a chance to uh purge yourself in this purgatory and that, that was the idea so that maybe these are souls in purgatory and as i mentioned uh, earlier when, in this case with the with the uh this is the one with all the physical uh, sounds and manifestations things of this kind it just didn't seem that these people were dead at all never mind being in purgatory so um that that was essentially what, what what that was about that was 1971 and 1972 and with us uh, with me were a bunch of other seminary students uh, five others and then a photo expert uh, whom we brought uh, especially because he didn't believe a word of this right on the second expedition he's the one to whom all the weirdest things happen <laughs> Yeah, and uh, his name was Marcel, and we were, uh, by the time he came, we had mapped the area. We knew it very well. We knew where everything was, really even in the dark. So we had spotlights, and you know, the high-tech equipment at the, of the time were flashlights, uh, notebooks, and uh, maybe a cassette tape recorders, uh, that sort of thing, and maybe some uh, some cameras. So we were going up toward the cemetery. Uh, it, was, it was maybe about 10 o'clock at night, and uh, we, we got... To a point where we knew it was, and it was like it wasn't there. We couldn't see it with the flashlights. Meanwhile, we looked back at, at uh, where myself was standing, and he was uh, huffing and puffing, and he was only in his thirties. But you know, you never knew. And these are the days before cell phones, so we were cut off from the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went back, and he was clammy to the touch, and he could not. He said he just felt as though we could not should not move forward that night. And we, f- f- he wanted to go forward. So three of us, four of us, actually tried to pull him forward. We could not budge him from that spot. We couldn't budge him to the left, his left, where the cemetery would have been. But he could move freely back and to the right. It was something that had him bolted to that spot if he was going in that direction. Uh, all of a sudden, he began to sob, uh, went over onto his walking stick, and you had to know this man. He's a very, very feet on the ground kind of fellow. You know, father of a young family. Not, not emotional in the slightest. Uh, and then we heard the ta- the voices. Uh, off to our left, um, very close by, it was a group of men. And you, you know how you can hear people talking. You know it's in English, but you really can't make out what's being said. Yeah, um, mumbling. Yeah, and it was very uh, human voices, a very you know, low and masculine voices. And um, we, we just, we began to pray, because we were seminary students, obviously. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Marcel felt better, uh, but we never explained those voices. We never did find the cemetery. We radioed to the other people to come up, and we just we sort of backed off. So uh, he said later on that he felt as if something was, was possessing him, it, it, not in a negative way, but, but to tell him that we should not go to the cemetery that night. I don't know, maybe uh, Ronnie the Rattlesnake was waiting for us. I, I don't know, maybe there was some danger, but it was <laughs> as if the place wasn't even there. So if I knew then what I think I know now, uh, we may have been across a membrane. We may have been more into their world uh, before the cemetery perhaps was built. Perhaps we uh, attended, uh, you know, unbeknownst to them, the first funeral in that cemetery. I mean, who knows? Because that, that cemetery had a reputation for being haunted from the earliest days of the settlement. Uh, as a matter of fact, we got a photograph, I believe it's in the book, of, of a uh, figure in a tree. It looked like a baby, at, and uh, we didn't know what it was. We saw it with our, with our own eyes that night. Uh, we got a photograph of it, and uh, I, I later found a book of local history that said that people would not go to that cemetery at night for fear of ghosts, quote, ghosts seen reclining in the branches of a certain elm tree, unquote. And we saw it 200 years later, apparently. So um, that was, but, but Marcel was the poor guy to whom all this stuff happened. And, I, I, wonder,
2: uh, I wonder if it was possibly his funeral. Uh,
3: in some part of the multiverse? Yeah, maybe it was. It's true. Uh, anything is possible. Uh, what I did find out though later on, as I state in, in the, the book, is that I, um, Ben and I are related to these people. They were relatively close cousins, the Randall family of Pomfret, Connecticut, uh-huh. uh, which is a really bizarre well, I don't believe in coincidence, but it was very strange. And yeah. uh, I wonder if um, it, that's what kind of prompted me later in life to say, gee, I wonder if blood relatives have the same, uh, for lack of a better term, psychic reactions to these stimuli in, in these places where these things are going on or not. And I didn't start with Ben, I started with a cousin, uh, our cousin Marshall from that part of Connecticut. And um, the first case we worked on was one of, uh, in, in a library in Abington, Connecticut, where water was mysteriously appearing and dripping down these stairs, and there was no source for it, and the stairs never rotted, just ordinary wooden stairs. Uh, but, but he did seem to have the same. And then of course, when uh, Ben got older, he expressed an interest in this, and his mom and I had a long talk, and finally at the age of 13, he joined me. But uh, we, we uh, much to my surprise, operate on very, very different levels, as, as you may have heard
2: yes <laughs> well it just i mean the what you experienced in that town was very much not not to the same degree but um i went i went to try to find dudley town here in connecticut as what apparently connecticut has a lot of strange stuff going on in it um dudley town is is also one another one of those towns that uh they say has a ghost town. It's a ghost town, but yeah, I'm
3: familiar I th- with it. Believe it or not, I've never been there. Um, I'm, I'm a Connecticut native too. Although we live, Ben lives in Massachusetts. I live in Rhode Island, but uh, I know the Warrens are always talking about Dudley town. Um, you know, it, you are kind of taking your, your life in your hand and you go there because the, the state police watch it and it's, Got such a reputation that people have made pests of themselves. It, it well, yeah. It
2: well, when I it had to be 20 years ago, more than 20, more probably 30 years ago, a friend and I decided to you know how stupid you can be sometimes. Mm. We decided to walk in to check it out. Now, um we were dressed for tennis and we decided to walk into the Appalachian Trail, which oh, is yes. which is which is I forget how long it is, thousand miles or something it's like over, that. It's
3: over two thousand miles long, and it's not—it's not, it's not mm-hmm. your local bike path.
2: No, it's not. And as we were as we're walking in, there are people that are walking past us that have backpacks and tents, and they're yeah. all, you know, and and we had a bag of trail mix, <laughs> and um, you know, we being an ex Girl Scout, I could see the markings on trees that were marking the uh, trail to a certain oh, degree. Yeah but but then it started to get dark and we realized that perhaps we were underprepared and and overzealous but the the one thing that we did notice was no insects no birds
1: mm-hmm. no
2: no animals of any sort i mean it was the most pleasurable time in and the woods and the woods the trees themselves were were big trees they were hundreds of years old you're talking about forest that is a couple hundred years old and it started to get dark and we realized that we were lost and you know i said oh they'll find our bodies someday <laughs> and we heard somebody chopping wood and we followed the uh, the noise of the saw and walked out of into somebody's backyard and then had to go <laughs> find the car um it, it was you know i i i after that went a little better prepared when we were going to go investigating spots. Type Good event. idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's what is it? Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. That was one of the <laughs> times where a bag of trail mix and dressed for tennis. Um, oh. What were we thinking? <laughs> but mm-hmm. but no. Um, you 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 have had some really fascinating experiences. Can you can you talk about? the village that that disappeared and and the um, house that disappeared because both of those stories are fascinating
3: well sure it was uh, the summer after uh, if uh, this is the one you're referring to the summer after the uh, uh bridgeport poltergeist outbreak and uh we, we have a whole chapter on strange places and things like that and this is in uh, vermont johnson vermont and I was uh, still in the seminary, of course, at the time, and I was visiting some friends there, and um, they hadn't told me that they were going to have visitors. And uh, an old pickup truck came bouncing up the road, and there was two surveyors from, well, as, they, as the Vermonters call it, from down country, okay, from uh-huh. the far south. Um, actually, no, I was, I, I, the, the, the thing was in in um, Johnson, Vermont, and I was, uh, we were in Enosburg Falls, which interestingly enough, uh, has E-N-O in the first part of the name, named after an uncle of ours, who was a general in the Revolutionary War. Uh, But uh, these fellows said, uh, well, they they were um, preparing to, they were surveyors preparing to survey a large tract of land in the town of Johnson, which is in the mountains there. And they were uh, walking the bounds, as they said, just preparatory to doing the actual survey. And they were looking at the uh, government survey map, which has most of the buildings on it that were there when the map were made. And uh, there was an old, old house uh, down in the, um, uh, sort of in the valley, and, and they were walking down toward it. And it was not on the map, and they were you know, joking around about incompetent uh, government cartographers. And they got down there, and, they, and everything was strange about it. There was some laundry hanging out, but there were no cars in the yard. There, was no, there were no wires running to the house, and it looked as though it had never been painted. So, uh, and all of a sudden as they were standing in the road watching it, there was a road of walling in the house, uh, a very strange looking man with a big beard came around the corner, uh, with an ax over his shoulder and they called to him because they wanted to know where his property lines were. And he seemed not to hear them or, or, or to hear them a little bit and he kind of looked kind of toward them, but almost looked through them like as if they weren't even there. And, um, they, they thought well there's still some pretty strange people in these hills so we'd better back off so so they they did and um, long story short they, they came back uh, a short time later um, to um, see to actually do the survey and the house was gone it was a, there was an old hole like there had once been a house there but it, 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 there was nothing. And uh, one of them went to the town records in, in Johnson, and they found that there had been a house there that had burned down in 1910. And uh, so th- this is what really got me wondering, you know, you have ghosts of houses. I mean, is this death, you know, it having to do with the dead or spirits or ghosts? Uh, and I would run into that, and then people who'd see ghosts of themselves and uh, disappear, whole, whole hotels and things, villages disappearing appearing, you know, from, from credible witnesses, things of this kind. Uh, people, uh, one thing we have in the book is, is the, the ghost town in Utah. Which, there wasn't supposed to be anything there, but the people from Rhode Island were traveling there, and, and they found a town where everyone spoke Dutch. All the cars were strange. Nobody spoke English. They didn't, they didn't recognize American money, and you know, so <laughs> yes. then they managed to get out of there, and uh, it, it was... Was nobody had ever seen it before? You know, I was just there were two of them and they were credible. And there you go. So these are all things we get into uh, in strange places. But that uh, disappearing thing in Vermont was really weird, and they actually took me to see the site.
2: you know, I'm wondering if if the Rendlesham Forest UFO sighting was a flap experience where, you know, that that was where UFOs theoretically landed in the forest and. Um, you know the 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 army tried to investigate it, and they 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 couldn't find anything. So,
3: well, they found know. plenty actually. Um, that that's one of our cases. Uh, the Renaissance Forest, and we do consider a flap area. Uh, we were there in 2012, and we had a lot of strange things happen. We uh, we we always take if if we're investigating a big case like this. This was, this was December 1980, and Air Force personnel reportedly saw. Not only lights over the forest, and we know all the major witnesses. They've uh-huh. been on the show, uh, and supposedly one that landed in the forest, and and uh, Sergeant Jim Peniston touched it, and he got uh, you know it's a long, long story. But we always look beyond these things, and nobody has talked a lot. Of, most people have never talked to the local witnesses, uh, so we made it a point to do that. And when we spoke in the village of Woodbridge, uh, we spoke at a hotel, and the room was full of people who wanted, They knew we wanted to hear local story, and we got a bunch uh, an earful and uh strange things happened to us when we were there they're still seeing the strange lights they're seeing bigfoot uh, all the things you would see in a flap area and it's uh, it's well documented by, by the local people whom nobody talks to and uh, if you look in the area within 40 miles there have been some of the, the most famous uh, events uh, in paranormal history including the the green children of wool pit uh the Alderberg sky battle of the 1600s and uh, you name it; it's taken place there. So, what happened in December of '80 was just the tip of the iceberg. So, definitely a flap area. So,
2: think- are are there are there around the globe places that are that are absolute flap areas, or do they just, or or do they fade in and out in different places at different times?
3: I think all of the above. Uh, one of the problems with the flap area is, you know, especially the triangle thing, and we do find things taking place within triangles is it it can be arbitrary you know how do you decide whether uh the the haunting uh in one area is related you know is in the same flap area as the the bigfoot scene stomping across the field over there uh but you have to really start somewhere and uh, what we look for too is the presence of the military we always find the military um in every single flap area it's in, in in the central connecticut one that we've been working on since so far because we work on cases for years at a time uh we found the military uh, involved with ground troops and they didn't care who knew it uh there's a a farm where there's no farming it's been completely rebuilt uh but again no farming and there's all sorts of strange traffic and strange activity and uh actually it's funny you touched on that uh barbara because our next book is going to be behind the paranormal uh, flap areas, or if we can think of a catchier thing, we will. But uh, <laughs> that's the next book in the series, Flap Areas.
2: Yeah, because I was, you know, the Hudson River Basin is an area that's had a lot of activity.
3: A lot of UFO stuff, especially. As a matter of fact, we're speaking at a conference at the Danbury Connecticut Library in October, uh, which came from sort of the interest in the Hudson Valley uh, UFO sightings, and we're going to be speaking there as well on uh, not sure what yet, but probably flat areas.
2: <laughs> they have a lot of also in in that area, the Hudson Valley area, um, they've got all of the stone chambers that nobody yes. can explain what they are or were. And uh, my, yeah. my, late hus- yeah, my, my late husband and I did a, a documentary on them. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it's called Secrets hmm. of the Stones. It's on YouTube. Oh, and, I heard that.
3: Um, oh, I didn't know you made that. Okay.
2: I wrote it and narrated it.
3: <laughs> oh, well well done. I'll have to go go back and see it. I was I used to be involved with the New England Antiquities Research Association yeah. many years ago. And Bob Stone, uh, I love the name, perfect name for the owner of uh, America's Stonehenge, is that called? Yes.
2: Yeah, he's you been can... on the show. He's been on the show. Yeah. Um, well, there's yeah, no I... the son. Yeah, Pat yeah, Pat Patrick uh was in was in um he was in San Francisco and he had his own radio show and he called me and he said, Do you know anything about these things? And I said, I Live in the middle of them, of course I do. Sure. And he came out here and we spent two years. We we must have we must have been in at least two hundred of the chambers. Oh, and
3: there's so many.
2: Most inner well, there used to be 800, Mm -hmm. um, but but again, unusual energy feeling, and nobody knows what they were for or who made them. And um, you get the same feeling inside the chambers that you get inside a crop circle. So, um, energetically, I don't know what they are, but but I do know that that there's they are connected somehow to. The, the UFO stuff and and a lot of the other stuff that that has gone on from time to time there so it's it's kind of interesting there's so much out there to investigate that that you know and 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 yet the news doesn't want to cover that kind of stuff they they would rather make up stories about other stuff
3: right true <laughs> I don't know but um even in Rhode Island we have some of the stone chambers but it's funny uh they're very small everything in Rhode Island is miniature mm-hmm you know, because we, we always joke about that because it's such a tiny state, but uh, <laughs> even we have our um, the, the Newport Tower and some a lot of stone chambers in the town of Foster by the Connecticut border that a lot of people don't know about. It's on Audubon Society land and a lot of very strange stone cairns uh, down in uh, central Rhode Island as well. Also on Audubon Society land. So uh, there are a lot of mysteries that, you know, we have over um, at least a million years that are empty. A million years of human history, we know nothing about.
2: Absolutely,
3: and a thousand civilizations could rise and fall in those times. So who knows what went on before the Sumerians or in America before? Uh, and they, you know, they probably,
2: it. they probably did. And and I think what gets me is with with this. Um, so when we die, a, a leaf falls, and and our consciousness just kind of goes on in 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 other aspects, in other places. Where's but it's already going on. Yeah. Oh, okay. But, but these, these cultures that were here millions of years ago, they may be going, they, they may have transitioned or transferred on whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, and it's possible that they're still here.
3: Well, sure. We, we uh, hear from listeners all the time who see, uh, I'm thinking particularly of, of Native American tribes operating in their backyard and, uh, you know, uh-huh. not being aware of them or, or being aware of them and, and uh, you know, f- fully dressed and hunting. And, and <laughs> we, we had a, um, a couple, a retired couple from Australia who listened to, to our show and they uh, w- were telling us that they um, saw dinosaurs outside their kitchen window from time to time.
2: Oh wow! You know,
3: so uh, so anything and everything is going on out there, and the uh, the more where you are, the more you're going to see. And, uh, and my, the-
2: I used to do a, a meditation in in Westchester where um, I lived with my mother for fifty years, and often in the middle of the meditation, numerous people would see um, a, a Civil War soldier sitting by a campfire in the middle of the in the middle of the room. Mm -hmm. And, and, and my mother kept saying, better not burn the carpet. And, and it was, it was fascinating because you saw him sitting there. You saw him just staring into the flames. It was like he was meditating with us. And, and obviously it was another time. And yet it was there then. And I would say of of the 30 or 40 people that were in the room, at least 10 or 15 saw it.
3: Sure. Sure well it's, it's it's again a matter of consciousness uh, unfortunately uh, i did a lot of work as a seminarian in psychiatric hospitals because i was <clears throat> not only there for pastoral visits i was assisting the diocese an <laughs> exorcist at the time and uh, people who have the these aware, awarenesses if you want to call it of uh, other lives other times um, are considered schizophrenic and then maybe they are you know and uh, they fill their today they fill their pockets full of antipsychotic drugs and off they go and they're considered you know but but they may be aware of worlds we don't know about and we're the ones who are limited and i've addressed groups of psychiatrists on this subject and uh, in in the public forum they will you know their eyes will turn red and they'll get all upset but very often afterwards they'll come up individually and say um not all of them but some of them and say i've often suspected especially looking in the eyes of a schizophrenic, that they're experiencing real worlds that we don't know about. But I can't say that because I'll lose my job.
2: Absolutely. No, I I, I taught special education for 25 years. Uh. And um, every now and then I would get a student that was obviously not not there, but happy And, and one day... The psychologist said, you know, you have to bring him into reality. And I said, his reality sucks where he is now. He's happy. Leave him alone. And um, I refused to do it. And the kid was just as happy as he could possibly be and as mellow as he could possibly be. And why pull him into a reality where he was so dysfunctional that he was custodial? Yes, exactly. Didn't make sense to me. No. So, but but it is, we're getting close to the end here, and I, I do want to thank both of you for taking the time to spend time with me and my audience, because it's been a fascinating eve- evening, and, and I'm sure we'll um, get lots and lots of questions. Um, I did want to mention that your website is BehindTheParanormal.com. Right. Yep.
3: Yeah.
2: And, and um, same one for both of you, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you do, you are going to be in the area in in um, Danbury next Saturday, I believe.
3: Yes, uh, we will. It's uh, kind of a different. We'll will be. Uh, it's the release event for the new book, uh, Behind the Paranormal um, Two, Behind uh-huh. the Paranormal Two: Mo- uh, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard Of, and that'll be at the Danbury, uh, Connecticut Library at. Uh, 10:30 a.m. to 12 on uh, the 24th of June, and uh, love to see everybody there.
2: Well, and you know, I think it's wonderful because y- you know these these cryptics are called monsters, but they're not.
3: Cause... Well, exactly. Well, th- th- this is a program uh, specifically geared for young. The book is not spe- specifically geared for young people, but the program kind of is, and we're inviting uh, children to bring any drawings they've done of Bigfoot or anything like that. We're going to enjoy those, and we have a presentation. A PowerPoint presentation uh, on all the different things we write about in the book and I think people will enjoy it and the kids well, can bring their parents too
2: and and you know well yeah and I think that that making them more familiar makes them less scary and, well, that, and that's what we
3: like to hear now that I understand it I don't have to be afraid of it anymore we exactly to hear that. yeah
2: and and you know there there are there are certain animals that I'm terrified of that I don't ever want to be a friend with. But um, but you know and like Bigfoot, man, I just get the feeling that they are so friendly and so gentle, and that um, we we shouldn't be chasing them. We should be kind of trying. It's like the the Native Americans when the the colonists came here. We we deemed them un un intelligent and everything and and we tried to convert them and they should have converted us um thank you again both of you so very much for being here tonight
3: well thank Thank you you. thank you for having us
0: radio at freedomslips.com We'll be right back after this message.
2: This is Barbara Delong, host of Nightlight Radio inviting you to join me on a cosmic journey exploring a metaphysical montage of spiritual material covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between, including spiritual readings for those who seek enlightenment. Let nightlight provide you with equal measure of light, love, and laughter, insight, wisdom, and inspiration. Monday nights, 10 to 12 p.m. Eastern, right here on Studio B, Revolution Radio, at freedomslips.com.